Amen. All right. Acts 27, verse 1 through 28, verse 16. That's where we are today. 27, 1 through 28, 16. And now this whole passage is a voyage. It's a sailing voyage from Caesarea, the northern coast of Israel, all the way over to Rome. That's where we're going today. Uh, before I go in there, I want to I make a little point of clarification for this doctrine and devotion class that's coming up uh, this week. Uh, if you haven't already, please, please, please do sign up over there. The reason why it's important that you sign up is because we were planning to meet in the church offices, but because of how many people signed up, we're going to have to figure out location change. We're not, we're not going to be able to fit in the church offices. Yeah, that's, it's a good problem, right? Uh, but because of that, we really need to have your email so we can tell you where we are meeting. Um, chances are good weather will probably meet in our backyard right downtown in Alton. Um, bad weather, we'll rent out the basement of the library. So, but we're going to be figuring that out this week. So if you think you might come, or if you just want to write down your name, go ahead, write down your name and make sure your email address is on there. I will make sure to get the location to you by Wednesday afternoon, okay? I'm going to make that as a personal commitment. Wednesday afternoon, check your emails uh, if, you're, if you're going to join us. All right. So this passage is a voyage from Caesarea to Rome. That's where we're going to be today. And what's amazing about this trip, this voyage, this sailing journey, is it's told in remarkable detail. Just remarkable exact detail in, in this story using um, sailing lingo that most of us don't use, don't read in the Bible very often. Uh, we're told step by step, blow by blow, what happens on this journey, the, the ports they go to, the, the mentality that the sailors have when they pick their route. All this detail is given to us. But whenever we open the Word of God, we have to remember something, that it is the Word of God. This is the doctrine of inspiration, that all Scripture is God-breathed. We might actually think of it not just as inspiration, but exhalation. It comes out from God himself, which means that these words are truly God's words. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's what the word of God can do. We also know from 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all scripture, not some scripture, not just the New Testament, not just Paul's letters, not just certain passages, not just the Psalms, but all Scripture is breathed out by God and, therefore, profitable. For what? Well, for teaching and for reproof and correction and for training in righteousness. What we believe about the Word of God, what we believe about this book, the Bible, is actually what the Bible says of itself. That it is God's words and therefore it is not only from God but also powerful to shape and to change our lives. So, is that true also of a story of a shipwreck? <laughs> if this word is living and active, able to shape and to change our lives, how does the story of a sailing journey, of just a, a voyage across the Mediterranean, how does that pierce the division of soul, of spirit, and of joint, and of marrow? If all scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, we just have to wonder, even this? Even just the passage that tells us the route they took to move from Jerusalem or Caesarea over to, over to Rome. 
Because I look at this passage and I think, okay, this passage, it might apply to Rob because he's a sailing instructor, but what about the rest of us? <laughs> what about the rest of us that don't sail boats, like Tom, who, do, who don't make boats? Why does this matter to us? How is this a living and active word that's actually profitable to our lives today? That's what I want to ask together today. So the first half of our time together, the first part, what we're going to do, as we've been doing in these longer passages at the end of Acts, we're going to read through the whole thing pretty quickly. I'm going to be pausing from time to time to explain what we're seeing. Luckily for us, it is an exciting, engaging story, so do get swept along by the story. But then at the end, what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to show you how this passage, too, is actually living and active how it's actually profitable for your life, whether you've ever touched a sailboat or not. And so today we're going to join Paul in his journey. But first, let's pause one more time and pray. Ask the Lord to use this time. Heavenly Father, as we just said, this word is your word. Your word is living and active. Your word is powerful. It is profitable. Use it to shape us. We pray with Jesus, Lord, in John 17, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Do that now by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. We're starting from Caesarea. You can join us on the screen or in your Bibles in front of you. I've got some maps here to help us see where exactly we are. Starting in verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy... They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to the centurion, that's a Roman military officer, of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking, that's from Caesarea, in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius, the centurion, treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus. That's a way of saying the sailors let the island block the wind from them. Because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, Myra in Lycia. Then the centurion, Julius, he found a ship of Alexandria sailing to Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, he's referring to the Day of Atonement, which is in the fall, which means that after that point, it gets more and more dangerous to sail in the Mediterranean. So even the fast was over. Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with injury and with much loss, not only to the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than what Paul said, which kind of makes sense. <laughs> And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, that was a logical thing to do because Phoenix was only about 70 miles down the coast. 
Let's just sail along the coast until we come to a harbor that's, that's fitting, that's, that's suitable to spend the winter in at this time of year. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught, sorry, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island named Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sardis, they lowered the gear and they were driven along. Really quickly, the Sardis are sandbars off the coast of North Africa. They are nowhere near North Africa. And what that shows us is that they're lost. (laughs) They have no idea where they are. Let's keep reading. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, throw it overboard. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. That's the machinery for loading and unloading the cargo. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, You should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood among me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have, sorry, as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Let's pause there. This is a lot. But we pause here and we, we just think, we, we, just, we have to see what Paul is saying. What is Paul saying here? What he's saying here is important. It's important because it's not actually his words. It's coming from an angel who's a messenger of God. These are God's words. This is God's instruction. This is God's message to Paul. And so it's easy to think right off the bat that what Paul is doing as he gets up and he talks to the people of the ship is to say, hey guys, I told you so. You should have listened to me. We should have stayed in that port. We shouldn't have tried to make it to Phoenix. I told you so. But that's not actually what's going on here. He's not saying, I told you so. He's saying, God told me so. God told me something. God has a message for me that I'm going to pass on to you, and here it is. And we also have to remember, he's actually being humble here. Because before, he shared his opinion with everybody. He said, I perceive that this voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only the cargo of the ship, but also our lives. That's what I perceive, he said. But I was wrong about that. I perceived that things were going to go bad. We were all going to die. But this angel came from God and said, do not be afraid. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. In other words, I thought the boat was going to sink. But God says it's not. I thought the boat was going to sink. God says that we are going to be okay, even though the boat won't. And so Paul is sure of that. Because he is confident in the word of God. Paul is more sure, he finds more confidence in God's word 
than his own personal opinion. And it's because of that that he can with confidence say to the men, Take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Let's keep reading. Join me in verse 26. When the fourteenth night came, had, had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that we were nearing land. But they took a sounding, they measured the depth of the water, and they found 20 fathoms, that's about 120 feet. And a little further, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms, about 90 feet. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down the anchors from the stern and prayed for the day to come. And as the soldiers were seeking to escape from the boat and had lowered the, boats, the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, in other words, they, they were making a run for it, they were trying to abandon the ship and everyone on it. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. Yeah. Unless the sailors stick around, we're in trouble. That's the message. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all and broke it and began to eat. Then all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. That's a lot of people. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay on the beach, oh, with a beach, on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape, which incidentally would cost them their lives. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to make for the land, and the rest on the planks or the pieces of the ship. And so it was that all, that's 276 people, were brought safely to land, just as Paul had predicted. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on a fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and so saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, 
And Paul visited him and prayed for him and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered on the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to uh, Pacholi. And there we found brothers, believers, and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, they came as far as the Forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when he came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. So that is the remarkably detailed story of Paul's journey from Caesarea to Rome. That's a lot of details that seem unimportant. They seem incidental. Who cares that one of the boats originally came from this port? Who cares that this boat had a figurehead carved on the front. Who cares? We read all of this, and it's tempting to get caught up in those details and be like, what, what should we take from all this? But let's just focus in on the big thing that's happened here. Paul has arrived in Rome. That's the big thing that's happened. He's made it. And this has been a long time coming. You know this if you've been with us. Paul has been planning to go to Rome ever since Acts chapter 19 when he said that after I have been there in Jerusalem, I must also see Rome. That was his plan. And then we read in chapter 23 that that was God's plan too. Just as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Then after two full years in prison, uh, he appeals to Caesar, and he is finally sent. To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you will go. And when Paul wonders if he's going to die en route, an angel shows up to him and says, Paul, don't worry, don't be afraid. You must stand before Caesar. You are going to get there. And now he's there. God got him there. That's the thing that's impossible to miss through all of it. But it's been a long and painful path. Now, we can focus in on these 10 chapters and think, hey, this has been a long, painful path from Jerusalem to Rome. But then we should also back up and think about the entire book of Acts. It's not just these last 10 chapters that have been a long and painful journey from Jerusalem to Rome. The entire book has been a long and painful journey from Jerusalem to Rome. Do you remember what we read week one? A year and a half ago when we started this book, Acts 1.8, Jesus, as he was ascending up into heaven, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And guys, isn't that exactly what's happened? Isn't that what we've seen the entire time? Chapter 1 and 2, we see the Holy Spirit come upon them. And then we see chapter 2 through 7, them bearing witness to Christ in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12 bear witness to Christ in Judea and Samaria. And then chapters 13 through 28, they bear witness to Christ to the ends of the earth. And now, as we arrive in Rome, we reach the end of that third section. 
the end of the end of the earth section, so that as far as the book of Acts is concerned, Rome represents the end of the earth. Paul has made it there. It's the terminus, the end point of Paul's mission, not the end of ours, but it has been a long, painful path to get there. And so, as Paul arrives in Rome, it's not just the fulfillment of these promises, it's also the end of all the travels that we see in, in this long book. From city to city, town to town, province to province, church to church, persecution to persecution, mob to mob, prison to prison, flogging to flogging. <laughs> Throughout this entire book, finally, Paul's travels, the travels of all the apostles, have come to an end. And so here at the end, what I want to do is I want to take away one last lesson from what this teaches us of God's plan for us, for his people, and for his church. And one last lesson about the mission of God for us. One last lesson about the plan of God. One last lesson about the mission of God. But first, let's look at this plan of God. This has been a theme. We talked about it quite a bit. But here's what's different. Up to this point, the greatest threat to Paul's life and his mission have come primarily from other people. The, the threat to his life and mission, it's, it's come from crowds. It's come from corrupt judges. It's come from the Jews. It's come from persecution. But here, the things that are per, uh, threatening Paul's life and threatening his mission aren't people. It's things like wind and waves. It's things like poisonous snakes. It's things like sailors who aren't being hostile to Paul. They're just trying to save their skins. This isn't persecution. This, this is more like the standard dangers of living in a fallen world. Dangers that, that lurk around every corner. It's dangers that could still get us today. That's the thing that's threatening the life and mission of Paul here. But in the storm, I wonder if you remember this, in the storm, God sends this angel to, to Paul. And, and let's look closely at, at what he says. He says this, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. He says, God, hey, Paul, you're going to be okay. You're going to reach your destination. No one's going to die. And so Paul comes to the, to, the, to the crew, to the people on the boat, and he says, I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. And the question that we have to ask is this, why does Paul have faith in God's promise here? Why is it that the message brought to Paul from the angels actually comforts him? Why does it bring him peace? Why does it bring him hope? Why is he able to go to the crew and say, hey guys, don't worry, it's gonna be okay. Why is he so confident in that? Here's the answer. It's because Paul knows that he has a God who is able to deliver on that promise. Paul finds hope in the promise that they're gonna make it because he knows he is a God who is able to fulfill that promise. He is a God who is able to actually get them to safety. He is a God who is able to control what happens even in a storm. He is a God who is able to control what happens to every wave-tossed wave, wind-tossed wave. 
that he is a God who is not only sovereign over the plots of man, the whims of corrupt judges, the violence of angry crowds, he has a God who is sovereign over even the weather. Every single teeny tiny wind-blown wave. And so Paul's protection in this storm, it proves to us something. It proves that the God of Paul, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our God, has power and a plan that extends to all places. God's power and his plan extend to all places, even to the everyday dangers and disruptions of this life. And so that's, that's the first thing we see here, or rather the one last lesson we can learn about the plan of God, that all things, even the everyday dangers and disruptions of our life, big things and small things, all of these things are under the control of our sovereign God. None of these things are outside of his plan. And what that means for us is that every unexpected letter from the IRS that we get, every virus or infection that sweeps through our family, every changed flight plan that we get emailed again and again into our inbox, every unexpected blessing we receive in this life, every unexpected and perfectly timed text we receive from a friend, all these things are under his control, and they are not outside of his perfect plan. The one final lesson that we have to learn about the plan of God is not just the big things in this life, but all things are under his control. So for us, what does that mean? Two, two takeaways from that. Number one, hope. Have hope in there. Like Paul, hope in the reality, as we've said over and over, that the plan of a good God is a good plan, even if it's not our plan. Find hope in the one who's in control. Hope in the fact that the good one is the one who's guiding. But the second takeaway is not only that we should hope in him, but that we should pray to him. Because what do we know about prayer? Prayer is only powerful because prayer moves the hand of the Almighty God. That's what makes our prayer powerful. And if the God who is over every wind-tossed wave takes our prayers into consideration when he carries out his plans, we should pray. He wants us to weigh in. He wants to use our prayers to accomplish his purposes in the world. So, in every wind-tossed wave of the sea, every possible complication that comes into this world, every big thing and small thing, we should not only hope that he's the one over all things, but we should pray to the one who is. We should pray and trust in him. Big things, elections, pandemics, small things. Uh, your daughter's heart on her first day of school. Bring these things before him. For some reason, he cares. And we find so much hope there. So Paul's mission, or Paul's well, the first lesson we take away is about the plan of God. That he is over not just the big things, but over all things. But here's the second lesson for today. One final lesson about the mission of God. Because Paul's mission 
it's never been all that different than our mission, right? In fact, it's the same. His mission and our mission are the exact same thing. We are called by Christ to make disciples of all nations. That's what we see him doing in this book, and that's what we have been called to do as his people. And while the details of what our missions look like might change from situation to situation and person to person, the call to make disciples is for every follower of Jesus Christ. It's exactly the same. And so the one last lesson that we have to reflect on from Paul's mission will we learn, actually, by looking at his mission as a whole. It's this. We see how far God might call us to go in order to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth and what responding to that call might cost. How far God might call us to go in order to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth, Rome and his situation, and what responding to that call might cost. I mean, We know it's going to cost. All labor, all work requires cost. It's costly, even if it just costs us our time and our energy. Although following Christ, we were warned over and over in Scripture, it's also likely going to cost us things like our safety. We're promised things like hostility and even persecution. And we know that if we follow His call even to places like other countries, we we know that it's going to involve the cost of navigating the difficulties of things as um, incidental as visa issues and and poor health care and fundraising problems. Man, if you could could talk to my friend uh, Silas and Riley, who were here a couple weeks ago preaching, visa issues are the biggest struggle for missionaries (laughs) and fundraising issues and things like this. But for all of us, whether he's calling you to go or calling you to stay, the cost of carrying the gospel to the ends of the world are high. And so why is it worth it? Though the costs are high, though we know the cost is going to be high, why is it worth it for people to sell all they have and move to Japan, to learn a new language, to to give up a good-paying job? Or why, why is it worth it for you and me to give up our Friday every other night just to spend time with some junior high kids. Why is it worth it? Why are the costs worth it? There's a passage in Philippians chapter 2, which I think more than any other passage of Scripture over the last couple months, at least, have been shaping and challenging me in my own uh, uh, life and ministry. It's, It's a powerful passage. It's a vivid passage. So I'm going to put it up here on the screen. And what this passage does is it shows us a bit of an explanation of what's going on in Paul's heart that makes amazing sacrifice worth it. Let's read this. He says this, Philippians 2, 14 through 17, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and a twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Okay, with all that, he's just urging the Philippians to be holy. That's all he's doing right there. He's urging them to be holy and righteous as they live in this world. Let's continue, though. So that, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. 
Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Okay, so that might seem confusing. Let me tell you what it means. The first half of it was saying, guys, be holy, be righteous. Oh, Christians in Philippi, Christians that I led to Christ, Christians that I poured into for a long time. Be holy, be righteous, be set apart in this world. Be, in his words, blameless and innocent. Shine as lights. But then he says this. So, or what is what he means? So that when I stand before God, I can be proud of your fruit. So that when I stand before God, I can be proud and boast in your fruit, the way you've grown. I can be proud of the result of my missionary labors. That's what he's saying. Proud that I did not labor in vain. That's his reasoning. Because then he says this, I poured out my life for this. I dumped out my life for you. I wasted it, at least what it looks like. But it was not a waste. It was a worthy waste. My life poured out as a drink offering was a worthy waste. And so I rejoice and am glad in it. If I could just see that I did not labor in vain. If I could just see your holiness. If I could just be assured of your righteousness. If I could just be assured that you are walking faithfully with your God. Comparing his ministry to a drink offering wasted before the Lord. And so what he's, what's, what's going on here is he's saying this, I poured out everything I have for you, but if you are knowing and growing in the things of the Lord, for me, it's worth it. And so I don't know if Jesus is calling you to go far. He might be. I don't know if he's calling you to stay near. He might be. But here's what I know for sure, that regardless of the context he wants to put you in, here's the heart he wants to put in you. A heart that is so zealous to see others know and grow in Christ that you would be willing to pour out your life as a drink offering. That you would be willing to pour out your life as a worthy waste, as an act of worship. To say to him and to other people, I will give everything so that you can know and grow in Christ. Because if you do, it's worth it. I would give everything for that. So we don't know the context he wants to put you in, but that's the heart he wants to put in you. And that's the heart that he put in Paul that motivated him, that drove him to pour out his safety, his life from the beginning to the end of the book of Acts. And so I do pray that God would call some of us far. I I would love to stand up here like I did with John, William, and Kimmy just a couple months ago and say, these people are going They're not going to be a part of our family anymore because God has called them on to something better, at least something better for them. But the reality is for most of us, we are going to stay. For most of us, God wants us here. And that's what's better for us if that's the will of God. So what does it look like for you here to pour out your life as a drink offering before the Lord? Like Paul did. What does it look like for you to willingly and joyfully pay the cost 
that Paul models for us. To pour out your life just in order that you might see others come to know and grow in Christ as an act of lifelong worship. Well, I think that for some of us, it might, it might just look like getting involved in, in, our, in our church. We've got people, we've got ministries in our church that through which you can do this work along with us, linking arms side by side to make disciples in our, in our church community, like the kids' ministry, the, the nursery, men's ministry, women's ministry, youth ministry. But for others of us, it's just going to be looking around and seeing, hey, I see my brother and my sister uh, in need, my brother or sister struggling to walk with the Lord. And it's going to be intentionally giving your time to spend with them, discipling them, pouring into them. For many of us who are, who are parents, this looks like parenting well. Parenting in such a way that doesn't only discipline our kids, but disciples our kids. That doesn't only show them the way a Christian lives, but calls them to do the same and helps them do the same. The call of a Christian parent. And because I have the opportunity here, I do want to lay before you the, the greatest need in our church, and I think that if you were to guess it, you would probably guess it. It is our youth. This is my annual plea. Our youth, um, right now, we've got one for sure leader for the next year. And man, I got to do youth uh, this last year, and it was a joy to get to know so many of your kids um, and to see the way that they're, they're, they're hungry for the Lord. They would come and tell me some of the things that God was doing in their life, and it's just, it's amazing. There is hunger, but there needs to be guidance. We need people who are mature, who have been walking with the Lord, or even people who are willing to humbly model a life of faith and to learn alongside them, to come alongside these youth kids and to pour into them. I just want to ask you to consider and to pray for this, over this. Is this the way that God might be calling you to pour out your life as an act of worship? To pour into these kids in order that they might seek, come to know and to grow in the things of the Lord. Like Paul, Christian, where is God calling you to pour out your life? What cost is he calling you to pay so that you can join him and all of us in Christ's mission. Now, as we consider where and how Christ might call us to pour out our lives, we also have to remember that in so doing, what we're doing is we are following the one who poured out his life for us. Hebrews 12, 2, we hear that, we read that, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus, endured the cross. He poured out his life for us. He, he endured the cross so that he could have the joy of being eternally with us together in the eternal presence of the Father. It's for that joy that he endured the cross, and it's for that joy that the cost of pouring out his life was worth it. And so today, as we turn our hearts and our attention to communion, that's what we're remembering, and that's what we're celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, he came to dwell amongst us. He lived the life that was absolutely perfect, a life that we could never live. He received the punishment for our sin that we deserve. He bore that on the cross, and then he rose again to everlasting life, so that by faith in him, 
and his substitution, we not only share in his death, we also are united with him in his resurrection. This is the message of the gospel, the good news. We're united with him in his victory over sin and death, united with him in his freedom from the bonds of sin, united with him in eternal, unending life.